or poor and happy? Would you rather be rich and miserable or poor and happy? Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I'd like to be rich because then I wouldn't be so miserable. But that's not the question. The question is, would you rather be rich and miserable or poor and happy? Clay Cockrell published an article in November 2021, and the title of the article is this. He says, I'm a therapist to the super rich. They are miserable. He goes on in the article and says, what could possibly be challenging about being a billionaire, you might ask? Well, what would it be like if you couldn't trust those closest to you? Or if you looked at any new person in your life with deep suspicion? He says, I hear from my clearance all the time, what do they want with me? How are they going to manipulate me? They probably only want to be friends with me because of my money. Then there are the struggles with purpose, he says, the depression that sets in when you feel like you have no reason to get out of bed. Why bother going to work when the business that you have built runs without you? My clients are often bored with life, and too many times this leads them to chasing the next high, chemically or otherwise, to fill that void. And then he says, money is seen by the rich as dirty and secret. Money is awkward to talk about. Money is wrapped up in guilt, shame, and fear. I love it because he acknowledges in this article that most people do not feel sorry for billionaires. Uh, They just chalk up their problems to first world problems. But he says, I have developed a great deal of empathy for those who have far too much. Just last week after we were done with the service, I was talking to a friend who is a financial planner and he has confirmed that many of his wealthiest clients are just absolutely miserable with anything and everything in life. Even in my pastoral work, I get to work with people of all financial levels, and I too see there are many who have a lot of money that are miserable. I ask you the question, would you rather be rich and miserable or poor and happy? Well, the good news is, as we will find in today's passage, in Christ, you do not have to choose. Christians can be both rich and happy. You can be rich and not feel guilty or ashamed. You don't need to beat yourself up because you have a lot of money. If you follow the principles of today's passage, you can relish your riches as a gift from God and an opportunity to glorify God. And so if you would, please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you are in the red Bible, which is in the seat in front of you, you'll need a Bible. Make sure you grab one. It is page 993 in the red Bible. This is now the second week in a row that we are talking about money, and if this is your second week here, you're probably thinking, man, this church talks about money all the time. Uh, Well, in reality, we probably talk about it too little. I I honestly didn't even realize we were talking about money again this week until Monday when I started my sermon prep because we've been skipping around 1 Timothy chapter 6. But the interesting thing is that money is kind of a big deal in the Bible. Did you know that Jesus talked more about money uh, in the Gospels than he did about heaven or hell? He talked more about money than anything else except the kingdom of God alone. And so money is a big deal, and for whatever reason, God thinks it's something that we need to talk about right now. Last week in 1 Timothy 6, we read in verse 10 uh, that the love of money, not money itself, money is neutral, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
Likewise, in verse, 10, in verse 9 of, of this chapter, we saw that those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, but those who desire to be rich fall into a snare. This week, as we wrap up the letter of 1 Timothy, we have a guideline for those Christians who are rich and how to maximize their happiness in the midst of their wealth. Now, before we dive into this passage, I do want to acknowledge that rich is somewhat relative. I don't know if you know this, but one-third of the world lives on less than $1.25 a day, which I think is less than the cost of a large soda at Quick Trip. 62% of the world, so over half this congregation, 62% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. The average global uh, personal income is under $10,000, and so if you earn more than $10,000, you are wealthier than half of the world. And the average uh, household income from the world is about 12,000 a year. The median household income in Wisconsin is 67,000 a year, and Brown County is 69,000 a year. I don't share any of that information to shame you or to puff you up or to belittle you, but I share it with you simply to say, I think this passage is about us. When we think about rich people, we tend, we tend to think about other folks, right? Like we're not the rich people, other people are the rich people. But the reality is, if you look in the economy of the world, you are, you're maybe a one percenter, a 10 percenter. You are probably the richest Christians in the history of the world. And so don't dismiss this passage as being about someone else. This passage is about us, okay? And so what we will find in this passage is that although riches often bring misery to people, Paul is going to give us a guideline how to be happy in the midst of our wealth. So let's look together. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 21. This is God's word. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for whatever circumstances spurred Paul to write this letter to Timothy, it has been so instructive and refining for us as a church to put things into order as you have designed the church, but also to cherish the things that, that you cherish and that we should cherish. And so God, pray, praise you for, for this book of 1 Timothy and pray that again through your Holy Spirit today that you would minister to our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned in my pastoral experience, I have met with many wealthy people who are absolutely miserable, but I've also met with wealthy people who are extremely joyful. God wants us 
to pursue our maximum joy with the riches he has given to us. And in today's passage, God gives us five ways, five principles for us to pursue great joy in the midst of our wealth. The first is this, is to be humble amid your riches. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That is not to be high-minded or not to be arrogant. Whenever we are around people who make less money than us, there is a temptation to look down on these people or to feel proud about ourselves. Maybe even as I listed out some of the statistics about the average income of Wisconsin or Brown County, you thought to yourself, oh, look at me, I'm doing very well. We like to think of ourselves as superior We would never say it out loud, but we might think in our minds, the reason why I have more money is because I am smarter than these people. I am a harder worker than these people. I am a better investor than these people. Now, the reality is that might be true. You might be a harder worker. You might be smarter. You might be a better investor. But let me ask you this question. Who made you smart? (laughs) Who made you a hard worker? Who made you a wise investor? Who decided that you would be born into a country or into a family or even into a century that would allow you to monetize the gifts that God has given to you? Who decided to keep your heart beating when you were seven years old and eight years old and nine years old? The answer to all of these is obviously God. When I was in college, I, I worked at a Christian sports camp in the Lake of the Ozarks, and all of these kids love sports, and they loved Jesus, hopefully, and, and so we were there, and we were ministering to them, and they would bring in these big, big speakers every once in a while, and they brought in this guy who was a professional Major League Baseball scout, and he would go out, and he would scout prospective players, and he would tell the organization whether or not they should pursue this player or not, and, and I still remember him saying to us, uh, he said, you know, if you're wondering how to make it to the Major Leagues, what I have learned is that you just have to be born with it. And, and, and like all of the high school kids are like, oh, dang, right? Like, like, he's like, he's like, you have to be born with a gift, a gift to hit a curveball, a gift to hit a fastball, a gift to hit home run. Like, like this is just a gift that you are born with. Many people cannot develop this gift. Now, if you've been given this gift, it, it is your duty to develop it, to work hard at it, to practice it, to, to grow that gift, but you are simply born with that gift. Knowing that the talents that we have to make the money that we have is a gift from God should humble us. It should humble us and make us thankful people realizing that we don't deserve any of this and this is all a gift of God's grace. And so if you want to be a rich, happy person, don't be haughty about your wealth. Don't be arrogant about your success. Don't be impressed by your skills. But be humbled that God, by his grace, has given you a gift. That's what our talents are. They are gifts. And through those gifts, we have been able to earn money and acquire wealth. So first, be humble amid your wealth. Secondly, be hopeful outside your riches. Verse 17, again, if you look there, he says, As for, your, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything. Our society is built with a lot of financial safety nets. 
whether that be home insurance or car insurance or life insurance. It could be our 401ks, our retirements, our savings accounts. Maybe it's our rainy day fund. And none of these are necessarily bad, but if we put our hope in them, if we rest in them, not only is our hope misplaced, but our hope is uncertain. Our hope is shaky. I mean, I think the past few years have, have shown us how uncertain riches are with out-of-control inflation, raising gas prices. I mean, I went crazy over the cost of eggs. I mean, eggs was like a barometer of, of my happiness. Just Friday night, I went out to go buy paint with my daughter so she could paint her room, and, and I was that guy. I was that guy. I was like, when I was a kid, you know, paint would cost $20 a gallon. Now it's $40 a gallon. When Trish and I were first married, which is not super long ago, maybe, but, but in Missouri, gas was under a dollar a gallon. All of the uncertainty of riches can make us very anxious unless we put our hope in a certain God. But what does that look like? I was talking to a friend a few, a few weeks ago, and in his previous employment, uh, he worked in retail. And he was the main provider for his wife and his kids. And because he worked in retail, a lot of his income uh, was based on, 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 uh, on, on what he sold and his commission. And he said it was a weekly, if not daily exercise to remember that the ultimate provider for their needs is not his job, but it is God and God alone. Likewise, I know a business owner uh, who several years ago had trouble getting enough work in to provide for his employees, and he had trouble eating. He had trouble sleeping at night. He was anxious about it. And he had to constantly remind himself time and time again that it is the Lord who will supply. You know, Job in the Bible is a great illustration of hoping in God instead of in uncertain riches. Job is described as a very wealthy man who feared the Lord. And in one day, really in one moment, Job found out that he had lost all of his riches, all of his flock, as well as all of his children. And he was left simply with a nagging wife. And upon hearing this news, Job says this, it says this about Job. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Later in Job, in Job chapter 19, Job says this. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, when all the riches are gone, he will stand upon the earth. Rich Christians, if you find yourself constantly checking your bank account, if you're anxious about the stock market or fretting over your 401k, Paul charges you not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on the certainty of God who richly provides us with everything we need. Do not put your hope in riches, which can be here today and gone tomorrow. Put your hope on God who is here today, will be here tomorrow, and will be here forevermore, and will provide for you his children. And so if you want to be a content 
and joyful and happy rich Christian. Be humble amid your riches, knowing that they are an undeserved gift from God. Secondly, be hopeful outside of your riches, resting not on the uncertainty of money, but on the certainty of God. But third, be happy spending your riches. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, As for the riches of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything. For what purpose? To enjoy. In the original Greek, it is to fully enjoy. I've never seen the movie Schindler's List, but I've heard about that one scene that everyone talks about. Uh, where, where Schindler, uh, who was purchasing Jews out of Nazi Germany, is lamenting uh, that he did not sell his car, that he did not sell his pin on his coat to, to purchase more Jews out of slavery. He's lamenting and crying over this. And the guy's saying, listen, you have, you have saved hundreds of thousands of Jews and for generations to generations, but he's just beating himself with guilt. And sometimes I think as Christians, we feel that's the way we should respond. That, that whenever we purchase something, that whenever we have something nice, we should feel guilty about it. Unless we feel guilty about it, we don't really understand how much money we have. Now, it might be right to be tempted, I'm uh, sorry, it might be right to be convicted if you're not giving faithfully to the church or to those in need or to missions. That, that might be a right conviction. But God wants us to enjoy the good gifts that we buy with the money that he has provided for us. Just yesterday, I was talking to my dad, and my dad became a Christian about the same time I did, uh, by God's grace, 35 years ago. And he is very active in his church and in missions. He, he helps support financially and in other ways uh, an orphanage in Mexico. He does some really awesome things. And yesterday, he was telling me about a new deck that he got on the back of his house. And he was so excited about the new deck. And I just remember like celebrating that with, I was like, dad, you shouldn't have gotten new dad. You should have supported, you know, other orphanages in other countries. No, we were able to celebrate. We were able to celebrate. He sent me pictures. I'm like, oh, wow, that looks awesome. And we were able to enjoy it. You know, think of it this way. When you give your child a gift for their birthday or for Christmas, you don't want them to be like, oh, I, I don't want this bike because a kid down the street doesn't have a bike. You want them to enjoy it because as they enjoy that gift, you enjoy them enjoying it because you love them and you love to give them good gifts. In the same way, your heavenly father has given you good gifts for you to enjoy. God delights when you enjoy his provision. And so when you save up enough money for that long-awaited vacation, when you see your kids light up as the plane takes up off the ground, don't feel guilty about it. Enjoy it as a gift from God for the glory of God. When, when you buy that new iPhone 37, when you buy Air Jordans 45, right? When, when you buy a new car or a new boat, enjoy it as a gift from your heavenly Father who loves you and loves to give you good gifts. So again, recap, if you want to be a happy Christian, be humble amid your riches. Be hopeful outside of your riches in God who is certain. And third, be happy spending your riches because look, your God loves to give you good gifts to enjoy. The fourth thing is to be helpful sharing your riches or be helpful by sharing your riches. Talking to those who are financially rich, verse 18 says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. 
Again, Paul never says that money is evil or that being rich is evil. And what we find out here is that God has actually entrusted us with riches as stewards to use those riches for the purposes of God. John Calvin, who's a theologian, says it this way. He says that a man's opportunity to do good increases with his abundance of riches. Rich people, which again, most of us are, have a special purpose and place in the kingdom of God that we should not take lightly. Specifically to be God's conduit of provision for those who are in need physically, emotionally, and spiritually. This past week, as I was listening to the sermon, I heard it put this way. It said, you know, some of us are called to be on the front lines of missions. Others of us are called to be on the supply lines of missions. This may sound arrogant at first, but here it goes. Many of you cannot do what I do. (laughs) Many of you can't stand up here week after week and preach. Many of you can't meet with person after person going through the worst moments of their life and grieve with them and continue to function at home. Many of you cannot connect with new people and help them to connect to the ministries of the church. A lot of you cannot do what I do, but to be honest, I can't do what a lot of you do. I certainly cannot do what Pastor Spencer does. It would drive me absolutely crazy counseling people. I cannot do what Pastor David does, playing music. Many of you know that, right? And I certainly cannot do what my wife does at home. She has a far more difficult job than I do. Likewise, I could not be a doctor. Now, you may say, oh, Dan, you're being too hard on yourself. But no, literally, I am not smart enough to be a doctor. And I'm totally cool with that. There is no way I could memorize all those things. It's just not how God wired me, and that's okay. But God has given the ability to some of you to make lots and lots and lots of money. And you should relish the role to be able to use that money for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. Let me give you an example. When we first planted Jacob's Well Church, I was supposed to raise financial support. Uh, That's what you do for the first three to five years of a church plant. And I was absolutely horrible at it. I, as a matter of fact, I got to see uh, what church planters raised throughout the denomination. And a lot of them raised $300,000, $500,000, $700,000 for the church plant. I raised $20,000. That's all I raised. And, and, and I looked at it. I was, I was far below everyone else on the scale. And I'm thinking, if anyone's looking at this, they're just assuming the church plant went under. That it didn't go anywhere. Well, in the early days of the church, there were definitely times in which the, 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 the money was tight and we weren't sure if we were going to make payroll as me and another guy named Jason Steger. You may remember him. And we just weren't sure if we were going to have enough money uh, to provide for, for uh, the paychecks for me and for this other employee. And, and what the amazing thing that happened is that every time, every time that the money got really tight, the Lord provided for us. He provided enough money to, to pay the bills and to pay for our for, pay for our salaries. Well, recently I, I found out that the way that God provided for us in those times of need was through a generous Christian who wanted to make sure that the ministry was taken care of. And as a result of their generous, generous willingness to share, as a, rich, as, a, as a result of them being rich in good works, their investment had great return with not only the thousands of people that have heard about Jesus coming through the doors of Jacobswell Church, but also through the five church plants that have come out of Jacobswell Church. And so why did Jacobswell ministry continue? Why was Jacobswell able 
to plant these other churches, it's because there was a person who had means in our church who did good, who was rich in good works, and who was generous and ready to share. Now, maybe you don't have the kind of money to help fund a payroll. I think most of us probably don't. But my guess is you do have the money to help a neighbor or a family member or a stranger or a brother or sister in Christ who are genuinely in need. Maybe it is to purchase a load of groceries or a tank of gas, or maybe it's just simply to bake some cookies and take it over and spend time with the person who is alone. You see, contrary to popular belief, we are not the center of the universe. And spending all our money on us will make us absolutely miserable people. We are made in the image of a generous God, and we are called to exhibit his generosity to others with our time, with our talent, but yes, also with our treasure. And so if you want to be a happy, rich Christian, be humble amid your riches, knowing that every gift is a gift from God of his grace. Be hopeful outside your riches, trusting not in deflation, but in your heavenly Father. Be happy spending your riches, because every good gift comes from your heavenly Father. And be helpful with your riches, because you have been entrusted with them to advance God's kingdom and to be a blessing to others. And finally, and fifthly, most importantly, the biggest secret to being happy in our riches is to be holding tightly to your greatest riches. This point's gonna take a while. We have a few more verses to go through on this one, but let's start in verse 18 again. It says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is calling rich Christians like us to make financial investment that have eternal returns, to invest in eternal things like the word of God and the souls of men. And Paul says that when we do this, it both stores up heavenly treasure for us later, whatever that looks like, but also leads us to true life right now. Now, to be sure, we cannot buy heaven, but where we invest our money reveals where our hope has been placed. And where our hope is reveals to us where we will spend eternity. True life does not come from the abundance of our earthly riches, but rather sacrificially and wholeheartedly seeking first the kingdom of God with our money, with our time, with our energy, with all of our life. You see, if you want to live life to the fullest, you have to remember the greatest treasure. The greatest treasure is not your money. It is not your possessions. It is not even your family or your friends. Your greatest treasure is God. And if your greatest treasure is God, then you will seek to use your earthly treasures to glorify him instead of seeking him to build your earthly treasures. I love the lyrics of that old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You have heard the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And my guess is you have probably experienced this at some time in your life. 
It is true because, again, we are made in the image of a generous God, and we are called to be his vessels of generosity to a world that is spiritually impoverished. When God becomes your greatest treasure, it loosens your grip on earthly treasures because your soul is satisfied and happy in God and God alone. And that, that frees us to give our earthly treasures away to support the kingdom of God. And then on that day, as you stand on the shores of heaven, you get to experience the overwhelming joy of seeing those enter into the kingdom through the ministries that you have invested in throughout your life. Verse 20, he continues. It says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Paul's still using financial language here, but here he is talking about spiritual riches, spiritual riches that are equal for every single Christian. And here Paul is reminding Timothy that he has a deposit. Now, what is a deposit? It could mean a few different things, but a deposit is the first installment on the purchase of something big, right? And so, for example, when we purchased our house here in Green Bay, we put down a $20, 20, sorry, not $20, that'd be great, a 20% deposit. And the bank at that time owned 80% of the house, and we owned 20% of the house. And once we paid 100%, which we have not yet done, but once we pay 100%, it will be completely ours. A deposit is the first payment to something that is really big. Here, Paul flips the analogy. We are not the ones giving the deposit. We are instead given the deposit. We are the ones that are entrusted with this gift that is going to grow into something big. And so what is the deposit that God has entrusted to Timothy, to you, and to me? Well, it is simply the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God did not hoard the riches of heaven to himself, but sacrificially and generously gave of his greatest treasure, his son, Jesus Christ. And when Christ came into the world, he did not come to claim worldly riches or to hold on to heavenly riches, but entered into poverty to die upon the cross for our sin and raise on the third day to give us newness of life and the riches of heaven for all eternity. But friends, this is only the beginning. It's only the foretaste. It's only the deposits. For when Christ returns, his kingdom will come in full and the redemption of the world will be completed. There will be a new heavens and a new earth with no more death, no more crying, no more pain. And where we get to be in the constant presence of our greatest treasure, who is God himself for all eternity. In this way, we are all equal in riches and that we have been given the deposit of the gospel of Christ. And we are called to rejoice in it, to rest in it, but also to defend it fiercely. Paul continues in verse 21. I'm sorry, in verse 20, he says this, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul has addressed false teachers a lot in this passage, and the false teachers were claiming this special knowledge. Yeah, it's the gospel, but the gospel plus something that's going to give you real life, real joy, real happiness. Maybe it's the gospel plus a whole bunch of money, or it's the gospel plus a whole bunch of health, or the gospel plus this secret knowledge about about Mary, or whatever it might be, like it's the gospel plus something will give you life to the fullest. 
And Paul says, don't get involved in that. Keep the gospel simple. Keep the gospel so simple that a little girl can share it from the steps of your church. Keep the gospel so simple that it is somewhat even mind-blowing how simple it is. Do not add to the gospel. I love the gospel math equation if you've ever seen it. It goes like this, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Paul is saying, do not add to the gospel. Protect the gospel. Treasure the gospel. Rest in the gospel. Delight in the gospel. Friends, if you want to be happy in this life and in the life to come, cherish Christ and Christ alone as your greatest treasure. John Piper shares an illustration that I think powerfully displays this point. He says, imagine you are on a plane. And on the plane, uh, in first class, there is this famous Hollywood actor surrounded by his entourage. And up there as well is this wealthy businessman who just closed a really big deal and is celebrating with the finest wine. And then there is a man in the back of the plane, a Christian businessman who just gave up a week's vacation to go on a mission trip. And he is returning home with the team full of the joy of Jesus. And then tragically, the plane goes down. And then the next moment, these three men are standing before God, completely naked, just as they came into the world. No Oscars, no frequent flyer miles, no stock market shares. They can only bring with them what is in their heart. Who in that moment is the richest? Who is the happiest? Who is the most joyful? Of course, it is the one who could bring Jesus. It is the one who had Jesus as his greatest treasure. Do you want to be a happy, rich person? Hold tightly to your greatest riches. Protect the deposit of the gospel in your heart and keep God as your greatest treasure. Paul ends the letter with these simple words. Grace be with you. That's actually kind of interesting because this word you is plural, which means grace be with you all. And so even though this letter is written to Timothy, it is obvious that Paul has the wider church like us in mind as well. And he is saying, you need God's grace. We need God's grace to understand his word, to delight in his word, to apply his word, and most of all, to treasure God above all else. And so he says, grace be with you. Let me end with this. Several years ago, after I became a Christian, not long after I became a Christian, one of my family members asked me a really peculiar question. He said, why is it that all the rich people are finding God? I'm like, what do you mean? And he says, you know, I know all these really rich people, and, and all of a sudden they've all become these born-again Christians, and they're, they're so joyful, and they're sharing all of their stuff with all of these ministries. It kind of seems like a waste. I don't get it. Like, why are all these rich people finding God? And the only answer I could think of in the moment as to why all these rich people are finding God was because most of us think that earthly riches will satisfy us. But super rich people know better. They have attained the financial riches this world has to offer, and they have ended up miserable and spiritually bankrupt. Rich people have this advantage. They know money does not satisfy the deepest longings of their souls. Hopefully, they will find out that only God does. Happy, rich Christians no longer use God to get money. They use their money to glorify 
and enjoy their greatest treasure, who is God himself. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this countercultural message from your word. We see commercials constantly telling us that if we want satisfaction, we need more of what the world has to offer. Thank you for reminding us that our satisfaction can only be found in our greatest treasure, who is Christ and Christ alone. Help us by your grace to cherish him above anything this world has to offer for your glory and for our enjoyment of you. And we pray this in